This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Rooftop Bars. Have you ever had a great night drinking with friends and thought the only thing that could make this better is a rise in elevation? Try a rooftop bar today. Welcome to episode 132 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. I hope you all had a wonderful new year. Today, we'll be talking about polar bears, which is also what I say at the start of every first date to, you know, break the ice. Come on, you know I had to get that one out of the way. These snuggly-looking bears have been at the center of the climate change movement for decades. They were the stars of everything, from nature photographs to documentaries to this kid's show on National Geographic. But the good news is that we can do things, like right this minute, that will help save the polar bears in a very real way. You don't even need to leave your house to do it. Saving energy and protecting the environment can help slow down and maybe even stop global warming. My friends and I started a club called the Screamin' Greenies, where we share ideas, do community projects, and take a pledge to do whatever we can to help save the planet and the polar bears. I'm sorry, the Screaming Greenies? Look, I love the enthusiasm, but from one climate advocate to another, I'm just saying if you call yourselves the Screaming Greenies, the only place you'll be screaming is from the inside of a high school gym locker. That was from episode 4 of Mission Animal Rescue, and it highlights the very common trend of using polar bears as a sort of climate change mascot. Oh, if we save energy and turn off the water when we brush our teeth, we can save the polar bears, right? And on the one hand, it's clever to get people to care about something because it affects cute furry animals. But increasingly, It's been a bit of an odd symbol for climate change when it also affects, you know, humans. I mean, why use polar bears to convince people when you can use Paul Rudd? For that reason, the climate movement has, in a rare smart development, sort of shifted focus away from polar bears and toward more human-centric issues. But this Christmas, or belated Christmas, I guess, As we look up to the North Pole, we shouldn't forget either that rapidly melting sea ice due to global warming is creating a major threat to polar bears' survival. Warmer summers due to climate change create longer periods of time without sea ice available for polar bears to hunt on. And when polar bears are waiting for sea ice to form, they can lose about 2.2 pounds a day. Those are the same numbers Weight Watchers promised our moms back in 2007. That weight loss leads to a whole bunch of other problems, and, well, I'll leave you in suspense so you keep listening. Today, we'll look at polar bears' roles in the Arctic ecosystem, how they're affected by climate change, and possible solutions to protecting their habitats. If you want to take two minutes to help out the Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show. Joining the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. But first, it's time for Polar Bears 101. If you don't live under a rock, a polar bear is a large bear native to the Arctic and nearby areas. The beloved Coca-Cola mascot has several physical adaptations, like a thick layer of fat and fur coat, to help them survive icy habitats. American humans tend to have this adaptation as well, but it's a lot less cute when we do it. At least, based on my recent dating success, I'm guessing. Apparently, we're wasting no time roasting Ethan in 2024. Fun fact about polar bears, their fur actually isn't white. And not in the I did 23 and me and found out I'm 1% Korean way. If you get up close and the polar bear decides not to make you lunch, 
The skin underneath their fur is actually black, and the hairs are a whole bunch of clear hollow tubes that sort of poof out and reflect light, which is what makes them appear white and allows them to camouflage into the Arctic landscape. Polar bears are also marine mammals. Their fur is waterproof, and they spend over 50% of their time hunting for food, just like the average college student. Sadly, not too many Takis in the tundra. Polar bears need large amounts of fat to survive, so their diet consists primarily of ringed seals, bearded seals, and of course, your mom. My New Year's resolution is to write a your mom joke into every single episode in 2024, and there's nothing you can say to stop me. Unless you're one of our patrons. Our expert this week is Dr. Andrew Desrochers, Professor of Biological Sciences at the University of Alberta. Dr. Desrochers explains a bit more about the importance of sea ice for polar bears' diets. The simplest way to think about polar bears is that they're a marine mammal. Uh, they're the only marine mammal that can walk on water, so to speak. And so their their primary habitat, where they make their living, and what they're doing today, just out in front of me in the shores of Hudson Bay, are killing seals and eating them. And they use sea ice as the substrate to walk over. Um, it's also the mating season out there, so they're also actively mating at this time of year. And for polar bears, they rely mainly on two species of seals, the ring seal, which is about 100 pounds, and then the larger bearded seal, which can be well over 500 pounds. And so at, at that sort of scale, these are incredibly rich meal packets. Because they spend so much time on sea ice to hunt, polar bears are actually the only bear species to be classified as a marine mammal. In fact, polar bear's Latin name, Ursus maritimus, literally means sea bear. I could go into more detail about this, but given that we are an extremely well-educated generation of SpongeBob SquarePants scholars, I think we're all aware of the fact that you should never play a clarinet in the wilderness lest it attract a sea bear. For those who never watched SpongeBob as a kid, I cannot help you. Consider investing in your own children's futures to avoid them meeting the same uneducated fate. But enough about Nickelodeon, they still have me pissed off from that worldwide day of play nonsense. As Dr. Desrochers also mentioned, polar bears' diets consist mainly of ringed and bearded seals because of their need for lots of fat to survive the freezing Arctic temperatures, sort of like your- What, I only get one per episode? Damn, should have saved it. The thick layer of fat under the skin of marine mammals, also known as blubber, insulates their body to trap heat, kind of like- Sorry, I can't turn this off. Anyway, this blubber is helpful for polar bears for four important reasons. One, a thick fat layer helps keep polar bears warm as they swim and hunt during Arctic winters. Two, large amounts of blubber help polar bears survive the summer months when there's less sea ice for hunting. Three, it's an insanely funny name. Seriously, try saying blubber ten times fast. Blubber, 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 blubber. Never mind, you can cut that out, Megan. And four, blubber is important for female polar bears during their gestation or pregnancy periods. Am I pregnant? Am I pregnant? Am I pargant? Here's Dr. Desrochers with a little more about polar bear diets. You know, we think about carnivores as eating meat. Think about polar bears as being a fat eater. I call them lipivores or for lipids. They eat fat for a living. That's what makes a polar bear tick. That's what makes it possible for them to remain active all winter long when it's, you know, incredibly cold out on the sea ice because they've got this fat-rich diet. And so what they're doing is they, I, I, they're sort of like a fat vacuum. They run around the ice, they kill seals, they suck off the fat, and they just deposit it right on their own bodies. Um, a bear can eat 10 to 20% of its own body weight in a single meal. So you've got a you know, a thousand pound bear eating a couple hundred pounds of fat. And out of that couple hundred pounds of fat, it's going to go directly into their own fat cells 
almost unaltered from the seal. It just goes into their stomach, in their bloodstream, into their fat cells. And these bears just balloon at this time of year, uh, putting on fat, because when the ice does melt, they're going to be forced ashore. And for each day that they're on shore, they're going to burn up about two pounds of their own body fat. Uh, and so what we've got going here is if the ice melts earlier, you can do the math um, and it forms later, then that ice-free period is when they're burning off their fat. So if they've got to go for 150 days, most bears are going to be okay. They've got enough fat. If they're going to go 180 days, that extra 30 days means they are going to burn about another 60 pounds of body fat. Now, if it gets out to 200 days, uh, a lot of bears in this population just don't come ashore fat enough. And, and that is one of the symptoms of climate change. We're seeing more um, bears unable to survive the ice-free period. So we're seeing higher mortality rates, typically in the youngest bears and the oldest bears. Now, those bears in sort of their prime years, they're still ticking along okay most years. Like Dr. Desrochet just mentioned, fat is an important part of polar bears' diets. In fact, their cheat meals are chobani yogurt and tabbouleh salad. Polar bears can weigh around 50% more after hunting season, sort of like humans after holiday season. Most of their weight is from fat alone. Oh my god, this is torture. Now, before we get into the climate stuff, why do polar bears matter? Besides, you know, being cute and stuff. Polar bears actually play a critical role in the Arctic ecosystem. Because the only threats to polar bears are humans, they are known as apex predators, or animals that have no natural predators. And as the quirky girls that occupy the very top of the marine ecosystem food chain, they are also what is known as a keystone species. Keystone species are organisms that help define an ecosystem. In other words, without the keystone species, the ecosystem would look fundamentally different or not exist at all. No other species can really fill the ecological role of the keystone species the way the keystone species itself can. Yes, even Jason Momoa in a polar bear costume. So an ecosystem would have to rapidly adapt and allow new species to populate the habitat in the wake of a keystone species extinction. Just by hunting alone, polar bears directly affect ringed seals, beluga whales, and population numbers of other prey in the Arctic. In order to avoid predation, these organisms carefully determine where they travel, rest, and eat based on polar bear behavior. Ringed and bearded seals are critical components of the Arctic food web because they link primary producers to larger predators in the food chain. Predation from polar bears controls seal populations, preventing their unchecked growth that could disrupt the balance of the ecosystem. If polar bears didn't exist, it would be planet of the seals up in here, and sadly, not all of them would be Gerald from Finding Dory. As polar bears hunt species like seals and whales, they also indirectly protect smaller prey, like krill and smaller fish. If there were way more seals, there would be way less of these other species, which would mean more of what they eat, and so on. It would be like if all humans went extinct, the global population of Trader Joe's Cacio e Pepe puffs would be through the roof. Polar bears also have a cultural and economic importance. They are featured in Inuit mythology, storytelling, and art, and provide Inuit hunters a versatile resource. Polar bear meat is a good source of protein, niacin, vitamin A, riboflavin, and iron, and their skin can be used to make warm clothing, blankets, and rugs. In Inuit culture, polar bears are a symbol of resilience for their strength, agility, and intelligence, and economically, in places like Nunavut in the Northwest Territories, hunting species such as caribou, ringed seal, and polar bears provides essential sustenance and a vital revenue stream. This is particularly evident in the guided polar bear hunts, which, before 2008, generated $1.5 to $2 million annually in none of it. This figure has unfortunately dropped to around $700,000 today, but even still, the income from these hunts, divided among local guides, dog team owners, and others involved, remains significant. 
The money earned is often reinvested in hunting equipment and supplies, supporting the subsistence lifestyle of Inuit families. Not many other economic opportunities exist in this region. There isn't even a Chuck E. Cheese to go work at. So the survival of polar bears is really important for their livelihoods as well. Unfortunately, climate change has thrown a bit of a wrench into that. The Arctic is especially susceptible to global warming, with temperatures in the Arctic rising nearly four times as fast as the global average. This is due to a change in the albedo, or amount of light a surface can reflect in the Arctic surface. Because ice and snow are white, they reflect a lot of sunlight. Think of them as nature's mirrors, and yes, they're full length. You know Mother Nature's gotta check out that fit in the morning. Work it, girl. When ice and snow melt, though, the white surfaces decrease, and the darker surfaces, like the ocean, increase. This dark surface absorbs more sunlight, which rapidly increases local warming. Another factor for increased warming in the Arctic is the increase in the movement of water vapor to the poles. Sadly, going to those poles doesn't result in an I voted sticker and Karen getting booted from the school board. As we've discussed in some previous episodes, warm, moist air from the tropics gets transported to the poles from the equator by a bunch of circulations in the atmosphere, which helps lessen the difference in temperature between the equator and the poles. I know it's a pretty big gap already, but it could be worse. As global temperatures rise, there is more water evaporating around the world, leading to more water vapor in the tropical atmosphere. When that moisture gets circulated up to the poles, it brings with it that tropical heat, further accelerating Arctic warming. For polar bears, that's a problem. Not necessarily because of the heat itself, they're actually quite resilient to heat waves, they just find some shade and eat a seal popsicle. But because increased temperatures lead to the melt of sea ice. Now as many of you know if you've listened to some of our past episodes on ice, Sea ice is very different from land ice. Land ice is what you find on Greenland and Antarctica, where snow piles up year after year until it gets compressed and hardens. Apparently it thinks the lady snowflake is really cute. <coughs> sea ice is, as the name suggests, in the ocean, and forms when cold temperatures actually freeze the surface of the water. Every summer, some sea ice melts, and every winter, some sea ice grows back. This is a natural cycle, and since the sea ice came from ocean water, melting it does not contribute to sea level rise. Sexy, right? Unfortunately, climate change has disrupted that natural cycle. According to NASA, summertime sea ice in the Arctic Ocean now routinely covers about 40% less area than it did in the late 1970s when continuous satellite observations began. And as we mentioned before, polar bears rely on sea ice to hunt for food and use as a background for their Instagram photos. As such, this sea ice loss presents a really serious problem. The big concern we've got, though, is over time, we are losing sea ice. And in this population, it's it's about six days per decade that we're losing sea ice. In other parts of the Arctic, we're losing six, uh, up to 30 days per decade of sea ice cover. So it depends on which population you're looking at. And, and this is something that also people don't always get with these 19 populations we've got 19 different scenarios playing out depending on how fast the sea ice is disappearing. So there's no one size fits all when it comes to the effects of climate change. Although we see the same pattern, changes in ice, changes in body condition, lower survival, lower reproductive rates, and then over long enough time, we can see a population decline. And the population I'm working in here has declined by almost 50% over the last few decades. Like Dr. Desrochers said, the loss of sea ice leads to food scarcity, decreasing populations, and a less accessible habitat for polar bears. With no sea ice available in the summer, polar bears are forced to live on land until the fall when they can return to hunting on the ice. 
longer swimming distances also cause polar bears to overexert their bodies, which can cause their weight to drop. Although I will say, when I used that excuse to get out of the high school PE swim test, it didn't work, so I don't know how much success polar bears will have with it. Worth a shot, right? If polar bears have less access to remaining sea ice, they ultimately have to move on to other species to get their calories, such as whale carcasses, sea duck eggs, and reindeer. Yeah, ever wonder why Santa needed Rudolph to guide his sleigh? It wasn't because it was foggy, a polar bear ate Blitzen! Shout out to Mason Rudolph for saving Christmas for Steelers fans. Your comeback player of the year campaign starts right here on the Sweaty Penguin. In all seriousness, if polar bears are turning to other prey, that could threaten other arctic species, like the arctic fox or walrus, by competing for their food resources. Furthermore, as we discussed with the food web before, as polar bears' populations decrease, the population of their food increases. Then their food suddenly becomes scarce, and suddenly we see these organisms higher up on the food chain turning to eating arctic vegetation. This depletes food sources for herbivores who depend on it. Imagine, if every single bodybuilder on Earth ditched meat and immediately went vegan, that would seriously mess up the average wait time at my local sweetgreen. And the problem doesn't stop there. In some cases, polar bears have displayed cannibalistic behavior. And in others, polar bears get so far away from home searching for food on land that we run into incidents like this one. A polar bear chased several residents around a town in Alaska, killing a mother and her one-year-old son before being fatally shot by a community member. This all happened Tuesday in the town of Wales. Now, at one point, a school nearby was even placed on lockdown as it appeared the polar bear was trying to get into that school. Susan Nedza is the Bering Strait School District's chief administrator, joining us now live to explain a little bit more about what happened. I'm sorry, two people died and bro just made a bearing straight joke? Local news is truly undefeated at terribly timed puns, I gotta give it up to him. If he's allowed to make a joke though, I think I am too. Ready? Why did the polar bear go to school? Because it wanted to be cool. <coughs> Come on, was that really that unbearable? <coughs> sorry, I didn't mean to be polarizing. Okay, fine. Moving on. I didn't want to joke about this story. The newscaster started it. But from this story last year, to a 2019 incident where more than 50 polar bears invaded a Russian village, to many more, polar bear and human encounters are becoming a lot more common. Sometimes everyone stays safe, and polar bears just rummage through human trash for food scraps. This is still problematic, though, because, well, Polar bears are eating trash. Every time I do that, I get a tummy ache. But it also inevitably leads to more upsetting news stories like this one. It is absolutely devastating to hear about polar bears killing people. And as you can imagine, more news stories like these could really put a dent in the sympathy humans have for polar bears. I'm sure listening to this, you're already throwing your souvenir stuffed animal from the Central Park Zoo in the trash. The more climate change drives these sorts of human-polar bear interactions, the more humans and polar bears suffer, and the more difficult it becomes to work with local communities on solutions if they're just scared and angry. Melting sea ice also means that however much sea ice remains is less accessible because it's further from the shore. These larger gaps between ice and land create even more risks for polar bears, like rougher waves to swim through. In fact, back in 2004, biologists even found drowned polar bears in the Beaufort Sea, which they attributed to melting sea ice and rougher waters. Do you know how crazy things have to be for a marine mammal to drown? Yeah, let that sink in. Get it? Because one example of these struggles is the decreasing polar bear population in Hudson Bay, Canada, at the northern tip of Manitoba, and actually where Dr. Desrochers called in from when we did this interview last May. 
Over the past 20 years, the ice-free period has increased by about three weeks, severely cutting short the polar bear's hunting season, which you know the dad polar bears are not happy about. I mean, you're telling me they bought all that gear at Dick's Sporting Goods for nothing? When the ice melts earlier in the spring, it leaves polar bears with less time to hunt when most seal pups are born. As a result, the average bear weight has dropped by 15%, bears are having fewer cubs, and the cubs they do have have a lower chance of reaching adulthood. All of these factors have led to a more than 20% decrease in the Hudson Bay polar bear population. That fits a larger global trend, where scientists have said it is likely the global population of polar bears will fall by more than a third within the next three generations. But hunting isn't the only way sea ice loss impacts polar bears. For instance, a crucial process for polar bears is called denning. After breeding, pregnant females dig a den in a snowbank on land or on sea ice to begin the gestation process. Basically, they dig themselves an underground chamber. Some dens are multiple feet underground, have multiple rooms, and a tunnel leading in. The average polar bear den with square footage and location taking into account would command a market price of $7 million on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Okay, I made that up, but I would not mind having that kind of room to spread out in. Because of the snow's insulating qualities, these dens can maintain internal temperatures of up to 40 degrees while outside temperatures are below freezing. What's interesting about polar bears gestation is that they do the opposite of humans. They cut back on eating, big time. That's right, no chocolate-covered pickles for you, mama bears. Female polar bears fast during pregnancy and actually have the longest known fasting period of any mammal species. The average fasting period before denning and in dens averages about 180 days. Some populations, like the polar bears in Hudson Bay, can fast for as long as 240 days. Female bears stay in their dens to give birth and nurse their cubs for three months, a process that usually occurs from October to March. During this time, they enter a light hibernation, or state where they can live on lower amounts of energy by lowering their heart rate, metabolism, and breathing rate. Denning is one of only a few times polar bears live in solitude during their entire lives. I assume the other times are when their friends all have the flu, they can't get any bumble matches because they're not over 7 feet, and the Steelers are on a 3-game losing streak and they just really don't want to see anybody right now. Thank you again, Mason Rudolph. While denning, polar bears are unable to leave their dens even if there is a disturbance, like noise from oil and gas exploration, because the cubs are completely dependent on them for milk and a safe habitat. Stupid cubs can't even go to the supermarket for milk. Like, touch grass, idiot. When a pregnant polar bear gives birth to a litter, which is usually two cubs but can range anywhere from one to four cubs, they rely on a buildup of fat reserves. With a normal fat reserve, female polar bears can give birth every three years to a litter that survives until weaning or switches from breastfeeding to eating other foods like Gerber's mashed pears. With each decline in available food, the period between litters gets longer, which can result in smaller litter sizes. This makes polar bears especially vulnerable to warming temperatures, as less time to hunt can result in insufficient fat reserves, which they need to survive the fasting period during birth and the cub's first three months. Unfortunately, sea ice loss isn't the only issue affecting polar bears. Take pollution, or as chemical companies call it, nature's paprika. Gotta make it a little spicy. Because they are the top predators in the Arctic ecosystem, polar bears accumulate high levels of chemicals through a process called bioaccumulation. Ever eat something with red dye 40 in it and immediately feel stupider after swallowing? No? Just me? Well, there goes that analogy. Here's Dr. DeRoche explaining this bioaccumulation process that leads to polar bears ingesting toxic chemicals. 
there's kind of different uh, levels here. Most of the concern we have about polar bears and um, toxic chemicals or environmental pollutants is associated with what we call long distance transportation. And so these are really industrial chemicals, agricultural chemicals, things that come from manufacturing that are used in industrialized areas. And then they get volatilized into the air or into the water and then transfer northward where they enter the food chain. And then through a process that we call bioaccumulation, uh, it gets into the base of the food chain, right down sort of at, at the small invertebrate level, little sort of shrimp-like things. And then it gets up into the fish and then into the seals and then into the bears. And the thing about most of these pollutants is that they bond to fat molecules. So they're 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 what we the term we use is lipophilic, which just means fat loving. And so they polar bears, because they are consuming such a high fat diet and they're at the top of the food chain they accumulate very high levels of these pollutants. And on the good side, polar bears are quite good at dealing with these. They have abilities to detoxify them or excrete them. Um, but we do know that they do have effects on their immune system, on their hormone regulation, possibly on things like bone density uh, and development, maybe behavior, but we don't know. Uh, the big concern is the interaction with their immune system, because if a bear is immune compromised, uh, especially in a warming climate, as new diseases and parasites move northward, we have concerns about some sort of interaction between climate change, uh, new diseases, parasites, and immune system function. We've been quite effective globally at reducing some pollutants what are called PCBs or polychlorinated biphenyls have actually reduced. That was because of international treaties that were put in place. And that's not one chemical, that's actually 209 different chemicals. So it's we don't know the effects of these chemicals clearly. Consuming toxic chemicals has several health risks for polar bears, obviously. I don't think consuming toxic chemicals has ever fared well for literally anyone in the history of the world. Well, except Daredevil. In fact, cubs that drink their mother's milk consume so many chemicals that even before they leave the den, they are among the highest polluted beings in the world. These guys get screwed over before they even see the light of day, and apparently their moms refuse to buy formula. Ridiculous. An important thing to note about toxic chemicals in polar bears is that any polar bear can have a different chemical cocktail, and not the fun kind of chemical cocktails they were serving up on Euphoria. With the possibility of different combinations of over 200 chemicals entering their bodies, the health effects are often subtle and can vary widely. For one, Toxic chemicals can alter polar bears' hormonal systems, affecting hormones that are essential to growth, reproduction, and metabolic processes. They can also suppress the bears' immune systems, which reduces their abilities to fight off disease and nervous systems, potentially affecting their cognitive skills. Vitamin levels, skull bone structures, and shrinking genitalia are some of the other things that might be affected by these chemicals. Couldn't you at least tell her about the shrinkage factor? No, I'm not going to tell her about your shrinkage. Besides, I, I think women know about shrinkage. How do women know about shrinkage? Isn't it common knowledge? Oh. But there's also a lot to learn, as Dr. Desrochers explains. We know that bears have hundreds and hundreds of chemicals from human origin. And it's probably naive to think that that sort of cocktail of chemicals has no impact on the animals, um, but we don't know clearly because it's just every bear is different in what sort of chemicals they've had, the load of them. It depends on their body condition. It's incredibly complicated. The other part, so most of those chemicals are not from local sources. They're long distance. They're coming from industrialized areas. There is growing interest in, of course, oil development in parts of the North. Uh, there's also, increased interest in shipping throughout the north. As the sea ice disappears, there's greater interest in transporting goods and uh, hydrocarbons through the Northwest Passage of Canada or the Northeast Passage over Russia. And there are concerns about environmental impacts. 
So how do these chemicals travel to the Arctic? By canoe? Lime scooter? Delta economy comfort? Actually, they get there via the wind and the water. The Arctic is known as a sink for persistent organic pollutants, or POPs, which don't really break down and can reach the region after traveling from very distant sources. POPs are toxic to human health and the environment, and because of their resistance to environmental degradation, they persist in the environment and accumulate in the food chain, especially in fatty animals like polar bears and up oh, close one. What's more, most POPs are not even from this century. We're not saying they've been around since the dinosaurs. Or maybe we are. I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm just the comedy writer. Hi, Mom! In fact, they come from industrial processes, like municipal and medical waste and smelting, but are moved by wind, water, and food cycles. Once they're deposited into wildlife in the ocean... POP concentrations are actually amplified due to a result of the cold trapping effect. And surprise, surprise, climate change is not helping. Due to warming temperatures, more POPs are being released into the atmosphere that were once trapped beneath ice, snow, and soil. Another threat to polar bears is oil exploration. Because of global warming due to fossil fuel combustion, sea ice melted, creating more opportunities for fossil fuel extraction. It's like when you're about to get charged for felony battery, so you leap over the table and attack the judge, which I assume just means you get a new trial for felony battery, right? Is it not an infinite loop? Oil exploration negatively affects polar bears in a few ways. First, contact with oil can reduce the insulating effect of polar bears' fur, so bears have to use more energy and increase the calories they consume to keep warm. Second, consumption of oil through grooming or contaminated prey can cause liver and kidney damage and has long-term toxicity. And third, major oil spills could destroy polar bear denning sites or even entire habitats. And due to difficult weather conditions in the Arctic, there are no proven effective methods for cleaning or controlling an oil spill in icy Arctic waters. Oil project operations can also disturb polar bears' activity. Seismic blasting, construction, and transportation for the oil facilities interrupts the denning process, which is essential for the survival of cubs. So are polar bears doomed? Is Coca-Cola gonna have to find a new mascot? Of course not. In our next segment, we'll explore how to protect polar bears, find the appropriate level of human-polar bear friendship, and do all of it without pledging your undying allegiance to the screaming Greenies. Do you want to have a drink while having the same POV as a bird? Then girl, get yourself to a rooftop bar stat. Sure, you could drink on the ground like a rat, but why not be a rat of the sky with a drink in your hand? Now is your chance to experience the freeing feeling of being a drunk bird without a problem in the world. With the ability to look down on your enemies, not pooping on them, but still having the option to do so if you wish. Rooftop bars. Not just for real birds anymore. So where do we go from here? How do we save the polar bears, besides taking the Screaming Greenies pledge? Well, the most important step, as you may have guessed, is mitigating climate change. By cutting greenhouse gas emissions, we stabilize temperatures, which curbs future sea ice melt, which pulls this under some semblance of control. Now I'm sure you're thinking, but isn't this too far gone? If you listened to our Rethinking Carbon episode two weeks ago, you may remember a lot of ocean impacts are prolonged as compared to land impacts. So, yeah, a lot is locked in. It's like when you accidentally like your crush's Instagram photo from three years ago at 2am. Like, you can say your account got hacked, you can unlike it, you can block her, you can like every single one of her pictures and then be like, haha, wasn't that so funny, and play it off. But no matter how smooth you are with it, a certain amount of damage is just locked in. That said, 
There is good news on this front, too. According to Dr. Desrochers, their models going out to 2100 show that while polar bears are facing a serious threat, extinction is thankfully not something we have to worry about right now. We don't expect polar bears to go extinct anytime soon. Actually, none of our models suggest at this stage that polar bears will go extinct. But we're only looking out to about 2100, and, and we don't look beyond that, partly because the policies that humans enact about greenhouse gases, about the changes in sea ice that are predicted, we just don't know. That far out, we stop. But we still have our very good evidence that they will persist at the high Arctic parts of Greenland out to the end of this century. But it is predicated on what humans do about greenhouse gases beyond that. In other words, this is well within our control. I won't go through the list of every action we can take to reduce emissions, like half our episodes cover that, but if we do in fact curb greenhouse gas emissions, which I believe we will, we already are, then we can absolutely avoid a worst-case scenario. We can avoid your crush finding out you actually like her and that's why you were looking back there. At least, that's what my therapist thinks. But beyond reducing greenhouse gas emissions, there are steps we can take to help polar bears in the meantime. And before even getting into them, the first question to ask is who is responsible? The Arctic is not a global common area the way Antarctica is. Much of the region falls under the direct jurisdiction of the Arctic Five, Canada, Denmark, Norway, Russia, and the United States. And there's no beef between any of those countries, right? Besides the time a Dane bumped into a Canadian's car, and the Canadian said, Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to get in your way there, eh? And the Dane was like, No, I bumped your car, I'll pay. And the Canadian was like, Oh, don't be silly, have a donut on the hoose. And they ultimately argued over which donut is best. I'm a Canadian citizen, so I'm allowed to make that joke. But if that were a TV soap opera, I'd totally watch it. In all seriousness, while there are certainly benefits to having sovereign nations each responsible for their own land, this fragmentation can make it difficult to make decisions about protecting the Arctic region as a whole. We know that climate change is a global issue, and if polar bear populations continue to decline, there can be larger consequences of an unbalanced ecosystem. Looking at treaties, declaring the Arctic a global commons like Antarctica, even finding some way for the rest of the world to incentivize the Arctic Five to do the right thing, are all options. And if that's not possible or too world governmenty for you, I totally get that. It's a tricky bunch, especially when, as we discussed in our Bovenyenkovo gas field episode, Russia is militarizing the Arctic as we speak. But polar bears do seem to be an issue they've found common ground on. In 1973, back when it was still the Soviet Union, these five countries signed the International Agreement on the Conservation of Polar Bears, and through that treaty, the five countries largely eliminated what was then polar bears' greatest threat, hunting. Obviously, climate change is a trickier issue to solve than that. It's like saying you can fix your friend's abandonment issues because you gave her good advice on an outfit one time. But it bodes well that all these countries do care about polar bears at the very least. Bare minimum, countries could manage their own populations, but report data, share solution ideas, really anything to make this a cooperative effort. What could those solutions look like? For one, making sure Far North communities have a game plan for human-polar bear interactions. And the old saying is that 90% of wildlife management is human management. You, you have to control what people do. And so one of the things you can do is for polar bears directly is try to reduce the um, incidental mortality. So we can control harvest. That's all done through harvest quotas. They assess the population size, how many can be sustainably harvested. That's a, a, a hunt that's mainly done by Inuit and some First Nations people in Canada and Greenland and Alaska. And so we can control that. So if we need to, we can stop hunting that side. But we then also have to deal with things like human bear conflicts. 
And so yesterday, the last bit of work we were doing up here, there was a bear that has come into town of Churchill, which is quite unusual this time of year. But we went into town to try to help with the wildlife officers uh, to find this bear. We couldn't find it. It was hiding somewhere. It came back in the middle of the night, but where it was hiding, we couldn't find it. The snow is starting to melt here, so we, usually we track bears out. But the, the thing is, if that bear gets into trouble, it'll be shot. Um, they'll try to catch it and move it, but if not, it'll be shot. So Manitoba, the government here in this province, has a very active polar bear alert program where they bears that come around town, they're put into what they call a polar bear holding facility, which is a nice name for a polar bear jail, uh, keep them out of trouble. And then when the ice comes back, they'll let them go out on the ice and they can go about being polar bears again out on the natural environment. But not all communities and most communities don't have anything set up to deal with polar bears. So about the only thing we can do is deal with sort of those incidental mortalities, try to reduce the impacts. But longer term, the only thing that's going to make a difference is what humans decide to do about uh, greenhouse gases and, and in the longer term. It's true. The Hudson Bay town of Churchill has combated increased human polar bear conflict with their very own polar bear jail. And let me tell you, the polar bears that come out of there are absolutely jacked. Although I do hear the food isn't so good in the clink. To send a polar bear to the Churchill Polar Bear Jail, people simply call a 24-hour hotline when they spot a polar bear. And no, you cannot talk to the polar bears on the phone. We tried. The hotline connects them to a member of the Polar Bear Alert Program, who organizes Churchill into concentric zones. If the polar bear is in the outer zone, the staff tries to scare them off with loud sounds. I've heard sometimes they just play some of my ex's farts to get the job done. If the polar bear is in the inner zone, staff try to lure them with seal meat and capture them in large cylindrical tanks. This tactic would work on me too, just replace the seal meat with a pastrami on rye and some noodle kugel. However, these bears are not locked up in a long-term prison. It's not a guilty until proven innocent situation. The goal is to relocate bear families as soon as possible. Bears found in the inner zone are kept in the prison for a month to reduce the chance that once released, they go back to the same place. When weather conditions are okay, the bears are tranquilized, bundled into nets, and airlifted to a site 70 kilometers north of Churchill. But unlike the stray dog you found and your parents let you keep for a month, the bears are not forgotten once they're released. The program tracks their movements using ear tag radios, sort of like overprotective parents with Life360. The polar bears also get lip tattoos for identification in the future, which your overprotective parents would not let you do. They see you were at the tattoo parlor on Life360 and make it a whole thing. The other cool angle is that Polar Bear Jail can be a tourist destination. For anyone brave enough to travel to the northern tip of Manitoba, the Polar Bear Jail could be a way to see one of these amazing creatures and support the livelihoods of this far north community. It's not the only option, though. There are many ways to handle a polar bear encounter, from jailing and re-releasing it, to locking down, to walking on your porch and saying, This town ain't big enough for the both of us. Okay, the last one's a bad idea. But the important thing is making sure communities are aware of the problem and have a plan that results in the least harm to humans and polar bears possible. Speaking of human-polar bear interactions, there are also maybe some opportunities to turn this into a positive. Between 2013 and 2015, rugs made from polar bear pelts would go for as high as $20,000. That number has been slashed a bit as demand has fallen, in large part because of bans on commercial trade, but it does present an opportunity. Can you allow some hunting of polar bears, rake in a ton of money, and use that money for conservation efforts? A lot of experts would argue no, 
According to a 2012 report from the NRDC, for example, Canadian communities motivated by these profits were killing way more polar bears than was sustainable, and furthermore, given how few polar bears there are, if humans hunt the ones that have the best pelts, that sort of creates a reverse natural selection, where the ones less desirable for hunting end up breeding and passing down their genes. Reverse natural selection, founder of braces and peanut allergies. I really should not be having kids. Sorry in advance. So yeah, I get why commercial trade wouldn't work, and banning it altogether is an option for sure. And I also see potential, where if managed correctly, commercial trade could be a huge benefit to the species. The loss of some lives would be massively outweighed by the revenue that could go back into conservation, creating a literal economic incentive for communities to ensure there are polar bears living for decades to come. Think about it. If Lunchables found out little ham circles were going extinct, they would do everything in their power to make sure those things were safe for generations to come. That's the kind of attitude I'm talking about. Another possibility is improving den detecting technology. And no, I don't mean when you're looking for two bedrooms that have a den on apartments.com, although we do need better den detecting technology for that too. I swear, some of the apartments on there are just like a shed in the woods. Better den detecting technology can help with mapping and recording the location of polar bear dens and is important for setting industrial limits in Arctic regions. You know how it's not allowed for people to come in and just bulldoze your house for no reason? Right? Yeah, I think they need a reason. But we have to make sure that same rule applies for polar bears. In the 1980s, when polar bear dens were first studied, Forward-looking infrared, or FLIR, was used for den detection. FLIR works by detecting infrared energy, or heat, from the polar bear's bodies and creating a visual image from that. Imagine if someone could find you in your home based off the heat your body radiates. If so, all of us men would be done for. Come on, you know you turn into a furnace at night. This is not just me. This creates a sort of map for us to know where dens are so we can avoid them. But FLIR may not be the best option. FLIR works best when weather conditions are almost perfect, which is almost never. Unless we're relying on six-day predictions from the local meteorologist, then it'll basically be 65 and sunny every day. And furthermore, the oil and gas industry uses aerial FLIR to detect dens, but missed 55% of all dens, which makes this technology pretty unreliable. 55% might be a passing grade if your professor has a curve, but the polar bears deserve better than my GE375 midterm. But Arctic weather conditions like strong winds, falling or blowing snow, and increased airborne moisture caused by global warming are all factors that make FLIR images inaccurate. The good news is, scientists are already hopeful about a newer technology called Synthetic Aperture Radar, or SAR, that has shown promise for den detection. According to a 2020 article published in PLOS1, SAR is not as vulnerable to weather constraints that limit FLIR. SAR can see through real-world Arctic weather conditions like snow and clouds. It also has a much wider operating range in terms of altitude and the amount of land it can survey, which is helpful for larger landscapes. Another advantage of using SAR is that it can be attached to a fixed-wing aircraft. A fixed-wing aircraft is just an aircraft whose wings stay stationary while lifting it off the ground, like a plane, which you all should know what that is. If not, maybe log off for today and go to the library. But this feature is helpful, because it means SAR can fly at closer altitudes and be imperceptible to denning polar bears and cubs, as compared to FLIR, which had to be attached to a helicopter and created the risk of sound disturbance when flying over a den. Another possible solution is satellite telemetry. 
Satellite telemetry transfers data from a satellite-linked radio tag to an overhead satellite. These devices allow scientists to track polar bears' movements through cold temperatures, wind, and darkness. Pretty sure that's what Santa Claus uses, too. For people and the polar bear that ate Blitzen. While we've been tracking polar bears for several decades and know for a fact that they're declining, it can still be useful to have a good sense of where they are, especially if we want to proactively protect them. And that kind of brings us back to the last point we'll hit on today, which is public awareness. It's not like other issues where people are unaware. In fact, they are aware, but maybe for not the right reasons. Polar bears became the symbol of all of global warming for some time, which likely left many feeling disconnected from the movement if they're not animal lovers, and even some more skeptical folks who thought if they could prove polar bears are healthy, then they could disprove climate change. Because that's how that works. If I can prove that Horton didn't hear a who, then I can disprove all books ever written. Aw, oh, damn it! But that idea led to some very easy disinformation spread. There are 19 different species with their own stories, and while they are under threat, they're not extinct. They're tough animals, and some are doing alright. All of that makes me feel like polar bears were never the right poster child for climate change, and the goal should be to raise awareness about polar bears for polar bears, not for the sake of the whole movement. But then again, I really like this point Dr. Desrochers made. He's a scientist. He said earlier in our conversation that his job is not to pick the mascot of climate change, but when I asked him whether he saw this phenomenon as good or bad, he had a really interesting perspective. I think it's a bit of both. I think it's it has been good. And one of the reasons I think it's good is because we had the data and we were monitoring polar bears and we had this data and then all of a sudden we could monitor the sea ice because satellite imagery really came on in the late um, uh, 1970s, early 80s. And once we could couple those data sets together, we had a very clear pattern of what was happening. Uh, the longer the ice is there, the better it is for the bears. And the, the thing is, I can go into a grade one class and talk to the, you know, uh, a bunch of young children about polar bears and the warming Arctic and where they live and that it's disappearing. And they get it. This is no more than a habitat loss issue for polar bears. It is the same fundamental threat that is threatening species around the world. We've got too many people chasing too few resources and encroaching into wild areas more and more. And that, of course, in, in you know tropical rainforests, we know that, uh, many other parts of the world. But here, the loss of habitat is induced by climate change. And I totally get that. Especially for kids. The idea of warmer temperatures melting ice and polar bears needing ice is really easy to grasp. And it's important to have things like that for a topic as complicated as climate change. I wouldn't go to the extreme that the screaming greenies did. I think it's important to know eco-friendly behaviors aren't just for polar bears, but for us too. But if they can be a helpful learning tool, I am definitely all for that. Look, I know polar bears being threatened by climate change is scary, especially when a certain level of impact is already locked in. But we have solutions to mitigate climate change and protect them in the meantime. And according to Dr. Desrochers, there's a social will to make that happen, too. It's a challenging issue because, as you say, polar bears live far, far away from where people are. Um, and I think that's actually one of the attractions of this species, because I always sort of refer to them as the, the beauty and the beast. They're beautiful to look at, and everybody knows a polar bear when they see one, and they're, they're charmed by little cubs, and they're so cute, and they're so beautiful. Um, but people also know that this is an obligate predator. They make their living killing things. So it's sort of the beast side of it, you know, but it's much more alluring when they're far away. So there's there's this global fascination with polar bears, and it doesn't matter where people are in the world. If you ask somebody what animals would they like to go see, give me your top 10. 
And almost always polar bears are going to be way up there on what people want to go see. And it, and it may be that most people, of course, will never see a polar bear. But it's just like, I've never been to Africa, but I, I like the idea that I could go there and see lions and elephants, uh, giraffes. I mean, it's, it's again, it's that idea of knowing that that opportunity is intact. And if enough people feel that way, we can absolutely tackle this issue. If we reduce greenhouse gas emissions, implement conservation solutions in the Arctic, and figure out the right way to communicate this topic, we can save the polar bears, protect their ecosystems, preserve the livelihoods of surrounding communities, and ensure no polar bear ever dares to eat another one of Santa's reindeer. I know Rudolph could guide his sleigh, but I promise you, Trubisky cannot. And yes, that is the most niche joke I've ever ended a Sweaty Penguin episode on. This wraps up episode 132 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. Clips today came from Nat Geo Kids and Live Now from Fox. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>